Recording in progress. Hello everyone. It is so, so cold. It is April 22nd when I'm recording, although this video won't be up until May. And I woke up to snow, which I'm not excited about. I've been buying some summer things, or like, not really buying them yet, but making a list for the, you know, the summer clothes that I want, and uh, this weather is not motivating me. So it's a Saturday where I am, happy whatever day it is for you out there. I have been uh, spending my morning basically, um, I have an outline for a paper due next week, so been trying to finish up this leotard, the postmodern condition, and then hopefully I will read some of Baudrillard because I'm trying to make my way through it as much as possible. And then, then the other person, I have an article about encoding and decoding by Stuart Hall, I think those are the three. I am going to talk about, I'm working on my thesis, it just work in progress for sure. Trying to, I think, define three characteristics of postmodern truth. I don't even know if that makes sense right now. So, that's fine. But today with you all, I thought I would go to this book um, by Elisabetta Edinger and um, it's more of a, I've been reading the letters, the actual correspondence, but I thought I'd read the story because I know she read the letters and it's kind of summarizing everything for us. So, yeah, so I haven't re read this. This is a cold reading. We'll see how far we get through. I don't know if I'll have many thoughts. Just thought I would take a break from reading and revising my introductory paragraph for my essay, which I just can't stop doing, so. Welcome. Hannah Arendt and Martin Heidegger met in 1924 when Arendt, an 18-year-old German Jewess, I thought she was 19, enrolled at the University of Marburg and attended his classes in philosophy. Their relationship, a word that inadequately conveys the depth of their bond, was to last half a century. What started as a passionate love affair underwent many transformations over the years. To say that it turned into a friendship is to say both too much and too little, though both Arendt and Heidegger might have called it just that. Arendt captured the impossibility of categorizing her emotions when she confessed to Heidegger in an unsent note that he was the man, quote, to whom I remained faithful and unfaithful and both in love. She was at the time 54 years old. He was past 70. So that's really interesting that the relationship lasted for so long. Was it just a strange the relationship can be roughly divided into three phases, 1925 until 1930 or so, when the two were lovers, 
The early 1930s, Heidegger joined the Nazi party in 1933 until 1950 when their lives were utterly changed by the rise of National Socialism and the Second World War, and 1950 to 1975 when, at Arendt's initiative, they resumed their old relationship, or rather, built a new one, that lasted until Hannah Arendt died. Throughout their relationship, each depended on the other in different in ways as different as their lives, needs, and personalities. The young Arendt needed love, protection, and guidance. When she was seven, her father died of syphilis, and shortly before that, she had lost her paternal grandfather, to whom she was deeply attached. Her adored mother traveled frequently to take the waters or visit relatives. Is that going to a retreat or something? Just taking the waters, maybe. I think so, maybe. Like a like a sanatorium bath, maybe. And each absence left the child upset, fearing that her mother would not return. Martha Arendt remarried when Hannah was 13. The marriage wreaked havoc in Hannah's life. She had to share her mother not only with a man who remained a stranger to her, but also with her two older stepsisters she detested, but to whom her mother felt close. From childhood, the world was a bewildering place to Hannah, not least because of her Jewish origin, for years of an enigma and a source of confusion. She felt lost, helpless, unprotected, yet she always put up a brave front. This idiotic compulsion, she wrote to her husband, Heinrich Blücher in 1945, inbred since youth always to put up an act in front of the world, pretending everything is such is just fine. That's what consumes much of my energy. So that explains uh, quite a bit for me when both Heidegger and Arendt in their correspondence kept referring to the way that Arendt had her youth taken from her she had to grow up too quickly so uh, so yeah that sounds uh, quite difficult losing both your father and your grandfather especially if you were close to your grandparents and um, the mother who sort of enjoyed her independence maybe at the cost of her child I don't know I can't comment on parenting at all because I'm not a parent and probably will not be the adult Arendt, the preeminent scholar, would indeed appear to the world self-confident, even imperious, but never would she appear so to Heidegger. The first-year student found in Heidegger a lover, friend, teacher, and protector. He promised to love her forever, to help and guide her. Carried away by his seductive declarations, she let down her defenses as never before. In an unpublished confessional piece written in 1925 that she called The Shadows, she described for him the terrors of her childhood and good girlhood, her insecurity and vulnerability. When they met, the 35-year-old Heidegger married and the father of two sons was finishing the manuscript of Being in Time, a book that would put him in the ranks of the most prominent philosophers of the, of the 20th century which I would definitely recommend. I think that it is a good book to 
in a sense, if you're going to read through Heidegger's complete works, in a sense to get out of the way, um, because it is difficult and long compared to his published lectures, which are, I would say, quite accessible and uh, just easy and quick almost to get through, uh, quick in really like in comparison with being in time. Um, I don't know, I'm sort of glad that I read it first and then the lectures because then I can go back after I'm finished reading all of his other works, I can go back to being in time and hopefully just uh, understand it so much more and enjoy it so much more. And uh, yeah, you just want to make sure that you get to it. And I think it deserves a second read, so why not put the lectures in between your two readings? From their correspondence, it is clear that he fell in love with his young student from their earliest meetings in his classroom. And I guess if I were going to recommend a book of lectures, I would recommend what is called thinking first, because I think that uh, that's kind of a series of lectures all on one topic, and it just progressively, uh, it, it has a very, like, satisfying linear progression as much as Heidegger's discursive ways can be linear and uh, some of the other books that at least that I have read um, there was the one on art and poetry and one on technology they, they don't seem to necessarily they seem to be more of a collection rather than a series of lectures so what is called thinking would be my first one that I would recommend to anyone if you don't want to read Being in Time or if you've already read it. And though his passion subsided as time went on, his need to be her idol did not. That's an interesting statement. And I'm sorry, the, the heater has to be on. Until he met Hannah Heidegger, strict, rigid, hardworking, the son of devout Catholic peasants, seems to have known little of genuine passion. What is this? Just some interesting rhetoric in here. What is this written? Mm. Published with assistance from the foundation, established in memory of Philip Hamilton in the class of 1894, copyright 1995. Okay, let's look more into that. Seems to have known little of genuine passion of a physical and spiritual bond. It is clear from Heidegger's letters to Arendt that she showed him how to love ardently and not feel it a sin. Very Augustinian. He needed her in order to breathe fully and deeply, to enjoy being alive. He needed to have her as a stimulating force in his life, as he put it. Despite the obstacles, Heidegger's family and his university position were the most serious ones. 
Their mutual needs were fulfilled throughout the first phase of their relationship. Their need for each other never disappeared completely, though the following 17 years changed the world as profoundly as they changed each of them. In August 1933, four months after Heidegger was appointed rector of the Albert Ludwigs University in Freiburg, is it Freiburg? I still don't know, joined the Nazi party and uh, delivered his notorious rectorial address, identifying himself with and supporting the ideology of the party, Hannah Arendt left Germany. So that's interesting because in the movie Hannah Arendt that was produced and written by Von Trotta, about the Eichmann trial, there was that there was a like a meeting, a confrontation. So I guess this is when Arendt messaged uh, uh, or you know invited Heidegger to come back and uh, you know talk to her. They were walking in a forest. That's the scene in the movie, and uh, she just tells him that basically his rectorial speech or address was just the most disgusting. Uh, speech ever and he was trying to promote ideology and I don't know he like takes her face and his hand and says like he's stupid or something I can't remember exactly but um or he's swayed by it was some kind of like romantic kind of way of looking at his faux pas it was kind of like I can't remember the exact lines but it was like what else could I do you know I'm a philosopher who seeks, or something like that. Through ex, although exile had already been on Arendt's mind, and though she had been briefly detained by the police in Berlin, Heidegger's openly declared allegiance to Adolf Hitler shattered whatever illusions she might, she still might have had about him, and may well have precipitated her decision. Henceforth, she would blame the German intellectuals. Sorry, I was just thinking, I mean, she, that wasn't the first time she kind of like left him. I don't know where she went, but I think she was studying at the university for maybe two years, I could be wrong about this, with Heidegger, and then she left to go study with Jaspers. Let me know in the comments if that's not correct. Henceforth, she would blame the German intellectuals, including Heidegger, for supporting Hitler, for betraying Western culture, and for displaying blindness and cowardice. For Arendt, brought up in a completely assimilated social democratic family in Königsberg, the Jewish question was limited to the name-calling of street urchins and school children, or to the occasional anti-Semitic remark of a teacher. That's true, I remember her saying something like that in an interview that is on YouTube that's wonderful to watch. And then there's a footnote here that says, talking about that interview, I think. In a 1964 interview, Arendt said, as a child, I did not know that I was Jewish. The word Jew was never mentioned at home when I was a child. As a child, now a slightly older one, I knew that I looked Jewish. That is, I looked different from all of the others. According to her mother's instructions, she had to defend herself only from the children. Her mother dealt with the teachers. In a 1952 letter to her mentor, Carl Jaspers, Arendt claimed that by virtue of her background, she was simply naive and that she found the Jewish question boring until her early 20s. 
when it became a political issue. Her scholarly interests may perhaps serve as an indication of the change she underwent. In 1928, when she completed her doctoral dissertation on St. Augustine, which I have that book, and I want to read it at some point this year, she began research for a biography of Rahel Varnhagen, a book first published in London in 1958 as Rahel Varnhagen, The Life of a Jew Jewess. Rahel Varnhagen née Lewin, 1771 to 1833, was famous for her intellectual salon. I just love that. I want an intellectual salon. We'll see. Maybe someday. But the indignities and humiliations she suffered as a German Jew interested Arendt most. Her research for this book led her to her preoccupation with the causes of anti-Semitism and with the history of the German Jews and her place in it. Thus, while Heidegger supported the cause of National Socialism as rector of Freiburg University, April 1933 to April 1934, Arendt in exile was finishing the biography and working for youth Elijah an organization that trained Jewish youth for agricultural labor in Palestine. She also was gathering material for what was to become the origins of totalitarianism. Another book I have, I haven't started reading it. A substantial part of which explored the history of anti-Semitism. Heidegger had found a like-minded companion in his wife, Elfrida. I read about this, I didn't know about this so recently. A zealous Nazi since the 1920s. Yeah, I just had no idea. That's so interesting. In 1936, Arendt met a former German communist in exile, Heinrich Bucher, who became her second husband, her soulmate and secure haven. Her 1929 marriage to Gunther Stern formally ended in 1937. That's interesting. In the movie that I keep referring to, I just watched it a couple weeks ago. Um, their relationship, Hannah and her second husband, I guess, uh, it was it was displayed really nicely. They they had a lot of love between each other. I think that he he well he was also a teacher. I just don't know if he was a college professor or not. When Arendt met Heidegger again in 1950, at this time the extent of his collaboration with the Nazi regime had not been made public, he needed Arendt for purposes entirely different than before. The ban on his teaching, the five-year battle to clear his name, and the collapse of his hopes to rejuvenate Germany by rescuing it from the onslaught of technology, decadence, and communism had left Heidegger bitter and disappointed but not penitent. He welcomed Arendt back into his life with genuine joy, but her horror over the, his alleged anti-Semitism and his pro-Nazi activities did not bode well for the reunion. Still, she came and listened to him, and he easily convinced her that the accusations were nothing but slander. Arendt was overcome with happiness. Her decision to return to her friend and mentor to the man she still loved though differently than before, was right. To miss the chance to revive the continuity of their lives would have been an unexcusable mistake, she subsequently wrote to him. Heidegger needed her forgiveness, for it absolved him of the charge of anti-Semitism and restored his confidence in the soundness of his moral principles. 
just because he had someone who was Jewish in love with him. I don't, I don't know if that feels like there's a gap. Hannah Arendt would be his goodwill ambassador to the world at large, in particular to Karl Jaspers, Heidegger's former close friend and now a friend of Arendt's. Arendt's, sorry. She would defend him against what she now believed to be unfounded charges, the prestige she enjoyed in the American intellectual community of which Heidegger certainly was aware was a precious asset. I mean, this just makes it sound like he was using her, but... For the next 25 years, their lives remained intertwined. Arendt's husband, an admirer of Heidegger's philosophy, if not of him as a person, encouraged her efforts, agreeing with Arendt that all that really mattered was to let Heidegger work in peace. She visited him as often as he would allow, secure in her belief that she alone knew and understood him, and therefore that she alone could alleviate his depressions and help him regain the peace of mind necessary for his work. Heidegger kept her abreast of his writings and lectures, and she in turn asked his advice on philosophical matters, not infrequently emphasizing the debt she owed to him. See, that's, that's just another thing. We were talking about the potential problematic elements in a relationship of age difference, especially one that starts out at a university in a classroom between, sorry, I'm trying to close this. My comfy cardigan. Um, how problematic it is, just an age difference in general. I mean, you know, their actual relationship in the university is just a whole other conversation, but just age differences in general. Um, I think, not having been in one, so I'm just <laughs> speaking, I guess, hypothetically, um, I think they could be problematic because of this right here, the younger person feels that they have a debt, you know, to owe. Uh, this older person for their patronage if they have any kind of power or they are extending you know helping the younger person network or whatever it is it's just weird to have the perception of an exchange like that I think in a relationship I don't know can you have a relationship without thinking about exchange I would hope so but it's interesting that that was mentioned. A refrain in her letters to him was that her thinking would not have evolved have have evolved as it had without what I learned from you in my youth. Ugh, I don't know. <laughs> Just he inspired her thinking and kept the classical philosophers. It's just, you know, I mean, I'm sure he learned from her as well. And I think just because you are young doesn't mean that, um, you know, you can't celebrate yourself and thank yourself for what, for what you were learning. I mean, it's, it's nice to have gratitude, but in terms of a, a romantic relationship like that, I just think it might be problematic. 
He inspired her thinking and kept the classical philosophers, her most important teachers, alive and close to her. Arendt and Heidegger derived intense joy from the same works of literature, the same poetry, the same music. As in the beginning, Heidegger wrote poems for her. Yet beneath this smooth surface ran an undercurrent of highly charged tensions, conflicting emotions, unresolved claims, and rancor on both sides. His rancor, like, that's not a word I use. Um, like, troubling, I don't know, chaos. Bitterness, oh, okay, <laughs> I, I had no idea. But I had put a heart next to it, so I've looked up this word before <laughs> and just didn't remember. You know, I should really like write down. I think I've thought about this before. You know, some people write down quotes. I should write down my own dictionary for words that I want to remember. Bitterness or resentfulness, especially when long standing. Via Old French from Late Latin, rankness in the Vulgate bitter grudge related to Latin rancidus stinking. That's a good word. I love etymology. That's why I like Heidegger, I think, because he likes etymology. Well, I like his works. the long, sometimes years-long, lapses in their correspondence and meetings. In 1974, a year before she died, Arendt wrote to him, no one can deliver a lecture the way you do, or nor did anyone before you. Though Heidegger did not lack accolades, Arendt's dependence on him fulfilled a need that no one else could meet. In the 1940s, I guess, I guess some things that I'm just reading, they're they're just red flags. In the 1940s, some of his other disciples, Herbert McCuse among them, turned away from him not because of his support of National Socialism, but because of his adamant refusal to denounce the party and renounce his membership in it. Arendt, the passion of his life, posed no such demands. Instead, she devoted herself to popularizing his philosophy in the United States and to vindicating his name in the eyes of the critics. She remained faithful to her first love and kept bringing back to the aging and lonely man an illusion of youth and a sense of being a supreme being in a world drowning in mediocrity. It is hardly possible to measure the influence Arendt and Heidegger had on each other. There is no doubt, however, that assessing their mutual dependency and the importance each had for the other is a key to understanding their lives. So their mutual dependency and the importance each had for each other. I wish that was maybe modified by like importance, you know, be more specific, intellectually. The picture of Martin Heidegger that emerges from this relationship with Hannah Arendt will no doubt surprise readers familiar with the philosopher's work, especially those who see in Heidegger only an austere and abstract thinker. At times he expresses his emotion in a typically Germanic, almost cliched, romantic vocabulary. 
I mean, I just, I don't know. I don't find him cliche and uh, I do find him quite romantic and poetic and mystical. So in his deconstructions of language and his nostalgia for the past, his sort of cautionary tale about technology, which is still echoed today in Byung-Chul Han and is a very valid conversation when we're talking about, for instance, transhumanism and AI. Elon Musk, at the time of my recording, Recently, um, I saw an interview of him with what's his name? Carson Tucker, maybe? Um, I think someone on Fox. And also, you know, I'm just various news medias where he is calling for a hiatus or a pause with AI so they can assess and he doesn't agree with how other people are working on AI. I don't know. So I don't think, I'm just saying, I, I think that his nostalgia is, uh, is still going on in thinkers today. His romantic predisposition seems to have led him both to a passionate attachment to Hannah Arendt and to a fascination with the Nazi vision of the rebirth of Germany. And that's really interesting because I've always wondered what compelled him. I've not read any literature from that time, like primary literature. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I really want to, but it may well be that scholars should look for the origins of Heidegger's involvement with Nazism, not only in his philosophy, but also in the specific needs of his emotional life. I would agree with that. I just think that looking for that in his philosophy might cause some misreadings and I just don't think it would be helpful if you're trying to extract something meaningful and helpful from his philosophy. His relationship with, but I don't, I just don't find him over cliched. I find him, his work's very fresh and exciting and compelling. I don't know. I, I like his philosophy so much, actually. Um, he's like in my top five for sure. His relationship with Hannah Arendt provides a glimpse into the world of his feelings, which he carefully kept out of sight. Okay. Going on to, uh, I think actually the first chapter. I think that might've been the, the introduction. Okay, um, actually, you know, I think I'm gonna stop there since we did get through something. I think 30 minutes is Good. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me, and it was a nice little break to um, move to something very different than just, you know, theoretical kind of dense material. I think this is a really well-written book. Good job, Elisabetta Edinger. I don't know. Elisabetta Edinger. Okay, I think I said her name just then is a professor is professor of humanities at the massachusetts institute of technology 
She is the author and editor of numerous books, including a biography, Rosa Luxemburg, A Life. Okay, and the cover, illust the cover illustrations, photos, um, Hannah Arendt in 1933 and Martin Heidegger, 1926. Okay, great. All right, well, I will see you all next time. For me, it's back to Leotard and Baudrillard and Stuart Hall and my essay. Recording stopped.